Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer. Then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are our rock and our salvation. You are our fortress, you are our bulwark, you are all of our strength, and you are sufficient for every challenge, every situation that we face in life. Now, Father, as we study your word this evening, we pray that we might be encouraged, refreshed, strengthened by your word, and that we might have our focus on eternal realities and not the temporal details of life. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Okay, a couple of things before we get into our lesson. Uh, I got an email this afternoon from a guy up in Oregon who's been to work in the area, been real interested in the creation evolution debate. The next week, PBS is going to be offering a program, a NOVA program called Judgment Day. When does NOVA come on? Anybody know? Is that Tuesday night? Okay, y'all are going to be in Bible class. You don't care. Um, it's about the Dover versus Kitzmiller trial uh, that took place a couple of years ago in Dover, Pennsylvania. And in that trial, the issue was that Dover School District wanted to make available to their students, and of course that means the school district would have to purchase it, an intelligent design-oriented uh, textbook called The Pandas and People, which would be available just as a resource on a voluntary basis to students. And, of course, the atheist crowd got all upset about it. And, does, you know, in the free marketplace of ideas, theirs can't compete, so they have to exercise tyranny and use the legal system to keep anything else out. So the judge ruled not only that uh, they could not do that, but also uh, <clears throat> made a ruling that said that intelligent design couldn't even be considered as science. So NOVA is going to do a special on this, and it's a very one-sided special. Apparently the people behind the movement that, that uh, uh, intelligent design people's Discovery Institute... <coughs> And their scientists were not interviewed on this program. Now, Discovery had the opportunity. They were approached by NOVA and said that just to make sure that their, their statements their, that their scientists made were faithfully used, they wanted to make sure that they had copies of all the interviews, had sound recordings of all the interviews, and initially NOVA agreed to those terms. But at the last minute they said they wouldn't allow Discovery to uh, record any of the interviews. 
And now what Nova is going to claim in the film is that the Discovery Institute refused to be interviewed. So, and they're probably going to take much of their quotes out of context, which is usually how how they operate. So that's just one thing to be aware of. The other thing is open your Bibles to John 5, 42. You know, since we're talking about eternal security and the whole issue of the gospel, last time I mentioned this, and I didn't get my focus on the right verse, but in John chapter 5, verse 42, we have a passage that is at the center of this whole controversy over that's developed within the free grace movement. And the contention is really is best stated in an article Zane Hodges wrote, and he's used this in numerous uh, numerous speaking opportunities where he's talked about this, and he sets up this scenario that a man is on a desert island. And he gets, he doesn't know anything about Christianity at all, doesn't know anything about the Bible. And he gets, uh, a bottle floats up and it has a piece of paper in it. And most of the text is washed out, but a little bit is left. And in John 5, did I get the verse wrong again? No, I didn't. Uh, did I get it wrong? I thought I copied that in my notes. I got it wrong again. John 5, I can't believe I did this. I'm looking at John 5, 44. That's what I said last time. No, not 24. If I knew, Gene, I could tell you. <laughs> that, was, that was just a really helpful comment, Brown. Yeah, if I knew the verse, I wouldn't be looking for it. No, it's, um, well, Jesus says, if you uh, believe, I will give you eternal life. Is it 524? No, that's all it says is, if you believe, I will give you, it's a short verse. Not 5.24 in my Bible. My Bible says, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him. 46. 46. No, that's not it either. You know, I had this earlier. Um, maybe it's 6.24. What's his point, though? I will tell you when I, I have to have the verse to make the point. Otherwise, I can't. Um, it's going to fall flat. Okay, John four six forty seven. John six forty seven. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has eternal life. And apparently, what he, what this guy what Zane sets up is that he has this passage from John six forty three to forty seven. But the only thing that's visible, that's, that's visible, everything else is wiped out or washed out, except for the phrase, Jesus therefore answered and said to them, then verse 47, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has eternal life. 
Now, how many of y'all, here's, here's an interesting little side note. How many of y'all have a New American Standard or NIV? This is confession time. So you don't have in me in your text. So not only does the, does the illustration kind of fall apart in terms of its theology, but since Zane's a majority text guy, it's got to be the majority text that washes up on the island. It can't just be. If he gets the NIV or NASB, the guys, the guys can't get saved at all. But his point is that Jesus offers eternal life and, and that this is all you need to get saved. There's no mention of the cross. There's no mention of Christ died for your sins. There's no mention of anything. All you need to know, and, and the way he sets it up and describes it in print, is that he reads this and then he makes the statement. And somehow the man is convinced that this Jesus can actually give him and can guarantee that he has eternal life. Now, my question is, how does he, he, how can this guy on the island distinguish between Jesus of Nazareth and Jesus the gardener and Isa the Muslim? He can't because there's no, there's no content there. And the hole in the logic is that somehow he convinced, he, as, as Hodges states it, somehow he becomes convinced that this Jesus can guarantee the promise. Well, the somehow is your logical whole, because the somehow means that in some way he's told something about who this Jesus is, and that would include his deity, and that he could do that. I mean, that's that's what's implied there. But what? Yeah. Well, no, he's not just leaving out the Holy Spirit. He's leaving out the cross. Yeah, completely. And that's the issue. And that's why this guy Tom Stegall up at uh, Duluth Bible Church, you can go to their website and read some of his articles, are, are, is saying that they have a crossless gospel. It is not that they don't believe in the cross. I want to make that clear. But they believe that a person can get enough information to be saved without knowing that Christ died on the cross for their sins. And this is where we have a problem and why we're, uh, having uh, these theological arguments, there have been problems at Chafer Seminary and other things that have gone on the last few years. And part of this is the idea that that what Jesus is offering is eternal life. And the other nuance that's developing in this debate and, and this discussion is that eternal eternal life, the eternal part of the phrase eternal life, means that when you understand that Jesus is giving you eternal life, what that means is that if you don't understand that it's eternal in the sense that it can't be taken from you or can't be lost, then uh, if you're not believing it's eternal life that you're getting, then you're not saved. In other words, and the most extreme form of that position was stated in a paper at the Grace Evangelical Society last year, though the author later backed off of it. See, one of the reasons they have these kind of conferences is for guys to, it's like a professional society. You present your paper for peer review. And sometimes your theological ideas are wacky, and your peers come along and knock you down and say, well, you're missing this, and you're missing that, and this is wrong. And so he did back off of this, but some of these guys are clearly saying that if you don't have a sense, and the phrase they'll use is that assurance is of the essence of saving faith, and that if you're not assured of your salvation, which as we've studied is the subjective realization that you can't lose your salvation, 
If you don't have an assurance of salvation, then you were never, ever saved. And that causes all kinds of problems, uh, theologically, I think. Many, many problems. But <clears throat> that's why we're studying this whole issue of eternal security, because this is at the at the heart of this issue. Now, our starting point here was in our passage in Hebrews 7.25. Therefore, he's able, he, being Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And the word uttermost has the idea to save completely, totally. Jesus is able to do this, interestingly enough, in Hebrews 7, because he's eternal. That's been the whole argument here, that he is eternal. He has an eternal priesthood. Therefore, because he has an eternal priesthood, he can save eternally. And that is a basis for understanding eternal security, but it is not a basis for becoming saved. You do not, the object of, of faith at salvation isn't eternal life. The object of faith is Christ who died on the cross for your sins. And that is what we find in passages such as 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You can turn with me there. You ought to have these verses underlined. Paul is talking to the Corinthians. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I proclaim to you. So he is getting ready to, or as we say in Texas, he's fixing to define the gospel. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I proclaim to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which, the same gospel, also you are saved, if you hold fast that word, word being uh, synonymous to gospel, that is that message, which I proclaimed to you, unless you believed in vain, which is a second-class condition indicating it's it's not, which, unless you believed in vain, but you didn't believe in vain, that is. For I delivered to you. See, delivering to you, how did he deliver to him? He proclaimed it. He spoke the message, the word. For I delivered to you. Here he's giving the content of his gospel message. I deliver to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen. So he goes on. He's not Everything he says here is not central to the gospel because the construction continues. I, deliver, I told you first that Christ died for your sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was seen by Cephas, by Peter. So you see that, that and that he was seen by Peter is still part of the sentence and the object of what he explained to them. So in one sense, what he is explaining here is the mechanics of how salvation was accomplished. But what is it that you believe? Well, let's turn to another passage. Turn to 1 Thessalonians. Move on past Ephesians. Colossians to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, a passage that is cited at almost every funeral. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and 14. Verse 14 is the key passage. 
But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, that is, the believers who have died physically, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe, first class, can, or, yeah, for, uh, well, here it is, assuming that's true, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. What is it that you believe? It's what's on the other side of the that. That's the, what you believe, that Jesus died and rose again. You can't divorce the message of Jesus' death on the cross from what a person believes when they are, when they are saved. For that is, that is the issue. That's one more passage I want to go to is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, once again, it's a context here of division. And Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize. Now, that doesn't mean that Paul wasn't supposed to baptize at all. It said that wasn't his primary mission. His primary mission was to proclaim the gospel. Uh, his primary mission didn't, God didn't send him to take up a collection either. But 1 Corinthians, he takes up a collection for the poor in Jerusalem. See, God didn't send him, he's, he's merely making a point that uh, he's not saying God didn't send me to baptize and therefore baptism isn't for today. He's saying that wasn't my primary objective. My, the primary objective was to proclaim the gospel, not with wisdom of words. In other words, it's not based on the rhetorical standards of uh, Greek speaking and the, using the right words and the right style and all these things, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. And that indicates there that the cross of Christ is a key element in the gospel. And then in verse 18, he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. If there's no message of the cross, then he's not proclaiming the gospel. The, 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 the preaching of the gospel is the message of the cross. And then skip down to verse 23, he says, but we preach Christ crucified. What he's, in verse 17, he's to preach the gospel, and that is further defined in verse 23 as preaching Christ crucified. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of man, foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The point that he is making is that he is there to preach the cross, and the cross is at the core of the gospel message because that is what secures our salvation. So I just find this to be the oddest piece of logic that some of these people are getting into, and you wonder how they, I don't know, people just get sometimes get all messed up, and then they start, they come up with some little doctrine that they think is such a brilliant breakthrough, and then if anyone who doesn't agree with them gets excluded from fellowship because you don't agree with my little pinhead doctrine. And every one of us can come up 
with some little nuance or shade on some aspect. But when we, especially when you come up with something that no one else in church history has ever come up with, and that doesn't mean it's not right. Lord knows the more we probe the depths of Scripture, pastors, theologians can always uh, put together, and they do put together and come to understand the Scriptures in a better fashion than maybe it's been understood before. But when no one else has ever emphasized something that you're emphasizing, don't make it the watershed for fellowship. Don't make that the benchmark of orthodoxy. And in church history, there's always been a process where uh, the leaders in the church will debate these issues and work out the kinks in among those who are trained and equipped in the, in the, in the, uh, in the scriptures. So that's kind of what's going on. One reason eternal security is such an important issue within the free grace camp, and it's also important because in the broader scenario of evangelicalism, you have Arminians on the one hand who don't believe in eternal security, and you have a Calvinist, a high Calvinist on the other hand, who don't believe that you can have an assurance of your salvation. And yet the Bible teaches both. And I pointed out last time that the difference is this. Eternal security is the objective side of the coin, that you know that God promises that if you're saved, you can never lose that salvation. Assurance of salvation is the personal subjective side of the coin that I understand that I am certain of my salvation. Okay, those are the two sides to the coin. So some people, even though you have eternal security, until you come to understand it, you may not feel assured of your salvation. Others may be sure of their salvation now, but they don't understand eternal security, so they're afraid that if they do something, they can lose that salvation. And that's true about Arminians. So we defined this eternal security as the work of God toward the believer at the instant of faith alone and Christ alone. It is God's work, not our work. We don't keep ourselves. God keeps us. In fact, as we're studying, all three members of the Trinity keep us. They're all involved in keeping us. And it's the work of God which guarantees that God's free gift of salvation is eternal and cannot be lost, terminated, abrogated, nullified or reversed by any thought, act, or change of belief in the person saved. Now, last time I went through uh, just some introductory concepts talking about the definition, uh, key terms like once saved, always saved, explaining the difference between assurance and eternal security, the historical uh, development between high Calvinism, Arminianism, and then the problem as it's developed within uh, high Calvinism and Lordship Salvation. Now tonight I'm looking, at, I'm, and last time we also started looking at how God the Father secures our salvation. I'm going to break it down this way. We're going to look at how God the Father secures our salvation, how the Son secures our salvation, and how God the Holy Spirit secures our salvation. And, and in that we'll look at some basic things that just come from the character of God himself that's true of all three members and that's where we're starting just from the character of God in terms of uh, who God is 
before we get into the three persons. So the first argument really comes from the character of God. And we have our essence of God. He's sovereign. He's righteous. He's just. He's love. He's eternal. He's omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, veracity, and immutability. He can't ever change. Now, in his, um, I went over this last time before we finished, that it says omniscience, God knows all the knowable. If he knows everything, that he knows every sin that's going to be committed in history. And so he can design a solution that takes care of every sin in history. Now, one of the things you may run into is somebody may say, hmm, well, he takes care of murder in principle, but not the individual murders. Well, that's, he's not paying for sins if he does that. But I've had people try to argue that. Um, he's omniscient, so he knows everything. He's omnipotent, so he, which means God is able to do that which he intends to do. Omnipotent doesn't mean God can do anything at all. Because God can't make a circle, a square, or silly little things like that. Omnipotence means that God is able to do everything he intends to accomplish. He is all-powerful. And so if he plans to solve the sin problem, he is able to solve the sin problem. And in his omniscience, he knows every sin. So it's paid for, and it's paid for immutably. It never changes. So his... All of his aspects of his character are involved in solving the sin problem from the aspect of his character. Furthermore, it also means that God is able to keep his promises. He is under immutability. We know that God is faithful and he never changes. And then another aspect has to do with his Integrity and integrity focuses on four aspects of God's character. Wait a minute. Why didn't that do what it should have done? There we go. Deals with his righteousness, which is the standard of his character, his justice, which is the application of that standard to every area of life, love, which is an integral part of his Makeup, which is always consistent with righteousness and justice, because love has to do with personal relationship, and he is truth. And of course, love is related to faithfulness. The Old Testament, you have the Hebrew word chesed, which means loyal or faithful love. And so these things are all pulled together. The psalmist talks about the fact that righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne, and love and truth go out from it. So this is the foundation he has he, he, in his omniscience and omnipotence. He's able to do all which he is, has planned. In his immutability, he is faithful to his word. He has promised he will uh, secure our salvation. And in his integrity, he is consistent with his promise, and he is going to bring it, uh, bring it about. So this is all from the character of God. Now let's look at the argument from the character of uh, from God the Father, the character of God the Father. The believer is secured by the purpose, the power, the provision, 
and the love of God the Father. All of those. Last time we looked at the purpose in terms of Romans 8, 28 and 29. That those whom God justifies, these he glorifies. The last two clauses. Though he doesn't lose anybody. Whoever gets justified gets glorified. When you put your faith alone in Christ, at that instant, God imputes to you the perfect righteousness of Christ. At that instant, God declares you just. Nobody gets lost. Of those he justifies, all are glorified, no more and no less. Now, when we get into looking at this whole aspect of God's power and God's ability to save us from sin, one of the problems that we run into is that too many people have a distorted view of what sin is. This is why sometimes it's necessary when you're witnessing to somebody to help them understand that they're a sinner. Because there's a lot of people who don't think they're sinners. There's some people who are pretty clear they're sinners, but there's other people who think, well, sin is, sin is racism, sin is, you know, something defined in terms of uh, intolerance today, or they're defining sin in terms of some cultural problem. They don't understand that sin is a violation of the character of God, and therefore they don't really understand what salvation is all about. You're saved, um, from something, and you're saved from the uh, eternal consequences of sin. So people have a small view of sin. Well, if you have a small view of sin, you're going to have a small view of salvation. And often you see this, especially with those who are more inclined to Arminianism and the fact that uh, that if you commit certain sins, you lose your salvation. If you talk to some Arminians... They haven't sinned in a long time because Wesleyan Arminians can become perfect. They can become sinless. See, they have a narrow view of what sin is. Sin is the, you know, doing one or two or three things, and as long as they don't do those three or four things, they're sinless. So they have a small view of sin and consequently a small view of salvation. A good passage to go to when you're talking to someone like this, is James 2.10. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point is guilty of all. See, it doesn't matter that you didn't commit murder or that you didn't commit adultery or that you didn't, uh, uh, you weren't a false witness. Uh, you might have kept every point in the law, but you're a little greedy. You covet and as Paul states in Colossians, greed is, is a form of idolatry. And so what you've done is you've set up an idol in terms of money. And so you're greedy and you covet. And that's what made Paul realize he was, he was guilty of the whole law. That even if you are just guilty of a small thing that you think of as not that great a sin... It means you're guilty of everything else. You violated the whole law. You might as well have gone out and committed adultery and uh, committed murder 
and you know dishonored your parents, all the other things, broken all the other laws, because you're guilty of everything. It doesn't. T- you, it only takes a little bit to violate the, the character of God. All Adam had to do was eat a piece of fruit. It's not on anybody's big list of sins or list of, of, of sins. So you have to help people understand a little bit about the fact that what sin is, it's a violation of God's standard and that there's a consequence for it, and that is separation from God. And that, But Jesus paid the price for all those sins. The next thing we have to help them understand is that God is more powerful than our sin. There's no sin that we can commit that is too powerful for God. Jude one twenty four says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. God is the one who's able. God is the one who has the power. It's not dependent upon us. That's such a freeing, relaxing thing is to realize that, that I'm going to sin. That doesn't mean it's, I'm rationalizing it or justifying. It's a reality that the sin nature never disappears this side of, of physical death. And therefore, I'm going to sin, but that's every sin was paid for on the cross. And there's so many Christians that run around, they don't understand either A, that the sin was paid for on the cross, or B, they don't understand 1 John 1, 9, that all you need to do is ask, uh, is, is admit the sin to God, and He will forgive you. They don't understand anything about divine forgiveness, and they just, they focus all their attention on sin, they're just all concerned about. It. Now, here's another thing. Every now and then, I hear this. I used to hear it a lot more, but I guess I, I just don't run around with the wrong kind of people anymore. But I used to hear people say that. Oh, I used to think that about First John one nine, but I was just obsessing on all of my sins. I just I was so concerned about being in fellowship that I just went around all the time thinking about. Oh, am I in fellowship? Am I in fellowship? I was just consumed with whether or not I was in fellowship. Well, see, I think they got a little bit of a problem. And there's some people who are that way. First John 1 9 isn't this thing that causes you to walk around all the time to try to figure out if you've committed some sin. You're either, you'll know it when you commit a sin. Most of us are arrogant most of the time. So that's a real easy one, I think, to confess. I don't know about you, but it's real easy to, for most people to get self-absorbed. Just get out on the freeway. You'll figure out if you're out of fellowship or not. But don't obsess on it. But there are some people who take it that way. And that's not what, what we mean when we teach that you, you need to be in fellowship and to keep short accounts. You, you're aware when you sin, just, just confess it. Um, so people just get so consumed about this, but Jude one twenty four and other promises tell us that he's the one who keeps us. We don't have to worry about it and be consumed with it ourselves. So Jude one twenty four. now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great glory. God is the one who holds the believer and keeps him from falling away. We can't do anything to permanently fall away in our relationship with God. Another passage is that focuses on what God the Father does and is in Romans 8.33. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Paul asks a rhetorical question. 
What's the answer? Well, first of all, it's God who justifies. God didn't provisionally, conditionally, or partially justify you. When he imputed to you the perfect righteousness of Christ, what is in your account is Christ's perfect righteousness. It's not something that's partial or something that you can affect because it's Christ's righteousness, not your righteousness. It's never based on who and what we are, what we've ever done. And that's just so great because that gives us the ability to relax and just live our Christian life without always being consumed about sin. Another passage that reinforces this is in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Now, I want you to turn there in your Bibles. We ought to be pretty familiar with Ephesians 2. I've alluded to this section several times in the last month. Ephesians chapter 2. Now, as I've stated before, the first seven verses are one sentence. The sentence is talking about what God does for us. So you don't, you're not introduced to the subject of the sentence, the grammatical subject of the sentence until verse four, but God. And then you have a relative clause and a couple of digressions in verses four and five, and you don't get to your main verb until verse uh, six, five and six. He made us alive together with Christ raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places. So God did these three things for us at the instant that we were saved. He made you alive together with Christ. That's regeneration. He raised us up together and seated us in the heavenly places. So if you lose your salvation, that means you get kicked out of your position in Christ. You're no longer seated in heaven, which is kind of a bizarre concept to think that God would do this. God does the work of raising you and seating you. You don't do that work. So how can you do anything to reverse it? It's not uh, not logical, not consistent with the text. Another verse is the verse that we have in our study, Hebrews 7.25. He's able. He, it's his power. He is the one who's able to save us. First um, Peter one, or Second Timothy one twelve. Wait a minute. Yeah, Second Timothy one twelve. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I'm not ashamed, for I know Paul says whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able. See, the one thing that runs all the way through this is he's able to keep us. He is the one who raised us. Who, who regenerated us, raised us, and seated us. He's the one who's able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. It is God that does the work. It is God's power that does the work. And 1 Peter 1, 4, and 5, which I don't have a slide of, says, to, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith. 
See, we are protected by the power of God. We're not protected by our ability to not sin, our ability to obey, our ability to uh, always be in Bible class, or, or our ability to do anything. It is the power of God who protects us. Okay, so the first aspect of looking at God the Father is that it's His power that keeps us. It is His power that made us alive, raised us, and seated us together with Christ. It is His power that guards what has been entrusted to Him and His power that keeps us and protects us through faith. The next thing that we have, we look at the power of God, we look at the provision of God. When we understand the dynamics and the complexities of what God must do to save even one person, then we understand that this isn't reversible. I've always thought this was so absurd to think that the salvation process was reversible. And part of this is because people really aren't taught very much about what happens at salvation, what God has to do to save us. It's a phenomenal process. God does so much for us, and he transforms us into a completely new creature with all these new assets that are given to us. To think that we can lose it is like saying it boggles the mind that all of that is reversible. Because what happens to us when we gain eternal life and gain salvation, we have so much more than Adam ever had before he, he fell. Because we're, we have all the things that Christ does for us. We have all the things the Holy Spirit does for us. We're, we're adopted into the family of God. We have the imputation of righteousness, which Adam did not have anything like that. All of this is, is ours forever. So we have... The, just, just the simple part of it is our imputation of Christ's righteousness. It's credited to our account. To lose that, God would be one who went back on his word. He's going to give it and then take it away. You know, when I was a kid, we, we used to call it being an Indian giver. Now, are we a Native American giver? I don't know. It's not politically correct, but you know by now that you don't have a politically correct pastor, so... I'm just, I guess I'm always carnal. <laughs> justification. We're justified because we possess that perfect righteousness. It's justification is a declaration from the Supreme Court of Heaven. You stand before the bar of God's justice. He looks at the fact that you have perfect righteousness at the instant of your salvation, and he declares you just. It's a judicial decision. You go down to court, you get a ticket, you go down to court, and the judge says, okay, not guilty, you go home, you can, can you get arrested the next day? No, that's silly. See, God, God doesn't go back on his word. Once he declares you justified, he can't reverse it. Romans 5, 1 through 3 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our access by means of faith into this grace in which we stand. We can't come out of that. We can't be removed from that position of having peace with God. So no matter what we do, we still have peace with God because the, the morals, the standard, the sin of ours is still there. Our personal sin, our personal unrighteousness, our personal failures are still there, but we have the righteousness of Christ, and it's that righteousness 
that is the basis for our salvation, not what we do. And when people come along and think that they can do something to lose their salvation, what they're not understanding is it's not their righteousness ever that is the basis for salvation. It is Christ's righteousness. And that's why I say whenever you think you can lose your salvation, someone you're thinking you've got a problem because you, you think that there's something you're doing, something of yours that has been the basis for your salvation. Now, we talked about the power of God, we talked about the provision of God, and now let's look at the, the love of God. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, the point of this is to show that God's love is given to us, is demonstrated to us when we're enemies, when we're hostile to him, when we're in the most uh, negative, obnoxious position we, should we could possibly be in while we were yet sinners. We are at enmity with God. We're in a position of being enemies of God, but he demonstrated his love toward us so that if he died for us while we were in the, the, the worst state we could possibly be in, what more would he do for us when we're peacefully oriented to him, which is the context of Romans 5, having been justified, we have peace with God. And so this whole line of thinking culminates in what Paul says in the end of Romans 8, Romans 8, 38 and 39, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What we see here is a, for the most part, pairings, although you have angels and principalities and powers, you have three things there. I think the angels are the, the elect angels, and principalities and powers relates to demonic organization here, but I, I can't prove that definitively. What he does is he takes... Well, this, is a, these are, this is a figure of speech called a merism. A merism is when you take two opposites, like black and white, or night and day, heaven and earth. Um, you take two opposites and you express them, and that includes everything conceivable within that, those two, two opposites. So when he says, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, nothing dead, nothing alive. Can you think of anything that doesn't fit in those two categories? I mean, everything's either dead or it's alive. So that means that there's nothing, okay? He's exclu he, he, by using the two extremes, he's including everything that there is. So that would relate to that which could die or that which could live, that which has life. The second category talks about the immaterial realm that God created, neither angels nor principalities nor powers. In other words, nothing in the angelic hierarchy, fallen angels, demons, elect angels, nothing in the unseen realm can do, can do anything to, uh, to affect our salvation. Nothing present nor things to come. We exclude the past because that's what's taken care of at the cross, for sure. So there's nothing present. Nothing to come. There's nothing potential. That includes everything. There's nothing that you can think of. 
neither height nor depth. Height and depth covers everything. Nor any other created thing. In case I left something out, there's nothing in God's creation that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, that phrase, in Christ Jesus, is specifically related to baptism of the Holy Spirit for the church-age believer. That when we are placed in Christ at the instant of our salvation, that action is done through the Holy Spirit, by means of the Holy Spirit. And once we are in Christ, that love that the Father has for us is a special kind of love. It is a familial love. It is an intimate love. That's why the uh, Greek word for uh, an intimate love, phileo, or the noun philos, the verb is only used with believers as the object. God loves the whole world, agapao, but he only has phileo love for believers. And once you're in the love of Christ, and this is agapao here, uh, 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 agape here, once we're in the... uh, we have the love of Christ, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, that can never be lost. Even the broader love, so which would include as a subcategory the family love. And Jesus says in John 5.24, Most assuredly I say to you, He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. Now we're going to move from talking about what the Father does to what the Son does. John 5.24 includes both the Father and the Son. The He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me. See, this is a pre-cross description of the gospel. We start off talking about the problem with... um, that we have today with the way some people are trying to express the gospel, they're going to passages like John 5 and John 6 when Jesus is talking to Jews in a pre... Not only is it a pre-cross environment, but it's probably in that period before the official rejection by the Pharisees that's pictured in Matthew chapter 12, which comes during the last year of his public ministry. So... Jesus is still offering himself as the king, and he said, If you hear my word, my message, and believe in him who sent me, you have eternal life. You shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. So even an Old Testament believer, which is what these would be prior to the cross, has a certainty of salvation. If you believe in me, you have eternal life. It can't be, it can't be taken from you. So we're secured by the promise of the Son. Another passage is in John 6:37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. If you come to the Father, Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Coming to Jesus is comparable to believing in him, accepting uh, him as your Savior. So all that the Father gives me, The one who comes to me, I will by no means be cast out. John 6, uh, 39 and 40 says, This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, that is everyone who would trust in Christ, 
I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. God is omnipotent, therefore he is able to keep, and is able to keep Jesus from losing anything. Jesus is omnipotent, so he can't lose anything. John 6.40, and this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. He doesn't say I might raise him up on the last day. If he's good, I'll raise him up on the last day. If he shows himself worthy of the gift, I'll keep it, I'll raise him up on the last day. He says, no, I will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus makes numerous promises that are not conditional, that are not based on our obedience, our behavior, but are based simply on believing in Jesus, coming coming to him. This is the promise from the one who holds the universe together. Therefore, if he is able to hold the universe together, then he is certainly able to keep us from falling and to keep us from uh, losing salvation. Now, the next section that we're going to get into has to do with the prayer of the Son. We've looked at the promises that the Son makes. Now we're going to look at the prayer of the Son. Now, this is important because if we go back to our passage in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, Therefore he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. The context of Hebrews 7 is his priesthood. And the last clause of Hebrews 7.25 is that he is able to save us to the uttermost since he, that is Jesus, always lives to make intercession for them. We are secure in our salvation because Jesus is always praying for us as part of his high priestly ministry. Now let's look at John 17.11. John 17 is the true Lord's Prayer, not the passage over in Matthew that is typically referred to as the Lord's Prayer. That was the disciples' prayer. John 17 is the prayer that the Lord Jesus Christ utters just before he goes to the cross. And he is praying for the disciples and praying for those who come to know the truth through the disciples. And as he's praying to the Father, he says in verse 11, And I am no more in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, I come to thee, Holy Father, keep them in thy name, the name which thou hast given me, that they may be one even as we are. So his first aspect, first aspect of his prayer in verse 11 is to the Father to keep us in his name. Now, if Jesus prays for something, it is within the will of the Father, and so the Father is going to answer him according to John chapter 5. John seventeen twelve. while I was with them, I was keeping them in thy name, which thou hast given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, save the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, this is another one of those passages that makes it real clear that Judas was not a believer. He is called the son of perdition. 
The same Greek word that is used for perdition here is the word that's translated perish in John 3.16. Someone who is a son of perdition is one who is perished. It's a, literally, it's the son of perishing. And so that means in Hebrew idiom, if you're the son of something, then that's what characterizes you. If you're a fool, you'd be called the son of a fool. If you are a murderer, you'd be called the son of a murderer. That doesn't have anything to do with what your daddy did. It has to do with your, that you are demonstrating the characteristics of this quality. So if you are wise, you'd be called the son of wisdom. But if you're the son of perdition, that means you're lost. You are not saved. And Jesus says, the only one that I did not keep and guard because he wasn't saved was Judas. Verse 13, but Jesus says, now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Verse 15, I do not ask thee to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. And this is, again, a strong passage against demon possession, but it is that we can't go back under the authority of Satan. We are transferred from the king, from the domain of Satan to the kingdom of God at the instant of salvation. And to lose salvation would mean going back under the authority of Satan. So Jesus' prayer constantly uses these words of keeping, guarding, protecting, uh, keeping them from the evil one. And this is his ongoing uh ongoing prayer. This is stated again in terms of his present intercessory uh, ministry, which is what is the understanding of background of Romans 5.10. Romans 5.10, Paul says, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. See, it's the death of his son that's the basis for reconciliation. Much more, having been reconciled, that means you're justified, you're going to go to heaven, you have eternal life. We shall be saved by his life. See, his ongoing post-resurrection life is at the right hand of the Father as our high priest, as our intercessor. And this is part of what secures our salvation. We shall be saved by his life. Romans 8.34. Who is, Paul says, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen who is even at the right hand of God. This is what he's doing with his living, his post-resurrection, post-ascension living. He's even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. John fourteen nineteen. A little while longer he tells the disciples, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, which is talking about his resurrection life, post-resurrection life, because I live, you will Live also, not that he might live, but that he would live. John 6.37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. 
And then finally, in terms of his high priestly ministry, Hebrews 10.14, For by one offering he has perfected forever. Now here we have that word uh, from the telos group, meaning he has completed that salvation. And this is talking about positional sanctification. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. That is, those who are in the process of growing spiritually, post-salvation. You are already perfected positionally, brought to completion, but in time you are maturing, being brought to completion in your spiritual life. So the first part of that verse indicates that as part of his high priestly ministry, he has perfected us forever, not just for a short time, not just temporally, not just conditionally or provisionally, but he has perfected forever. Okay, now that takes us through the promise of the Son. It takes us through the prayer of the, the, the promise of the Son and the prayer of the Son. And then the last thing we'll cover next time is related to the work of the Son. And then we'll talk about God the Holy Spirit. All right, let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things tonight and to, to look at the fact that in Every aspect, each member of the Trinity is involved in securing our salvation. Each, uh, each person of the Trinity is involved in keeping us, that we are not kept by our own works, our own effort, but we're kept by your power. And because you had a perfect plan conceived in eternity past that would take care of any and all problems and objections so that we could be securely brought into heaven. We thank you for our great salvation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.